Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights in transport from around the globe. I'm Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions, and today we're introducing Bolden's very own Chris Bichette. He's the grandly titled Head of Product Development, Innovation and Solutions at Bolden Networks. And after this episode, he'll take over as the host of the podcast. But first, let's get to know about him and why stations and connected transit are important to Chris and Bolden Networks. Best to go all the way back to the beginning and talk about who are you and who are Bolden Networks? Who am I? I am Chris Brichette. Uh, I am the uh, Head of Product Development, Innovation and Solutions at uh, Bolden. I sometimes have to write that down it's so long so I can read it properly again. Um, I, I work on a ton of interesting things at Bolden. I, I, to, my, to my bosses, I love my job, um, but uh, I do work on some very interesting things. I work with the Connected Vehicles team to get trains and buses and maybe ships one day and maybe the... Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos' spaceship connected to uh, connected to the rest of the world. Um, I work on uh, the mission control panels that uh, give the status and, and reporting from all of that uh, activity that happens. I'm connected to the WBA, the World Wireless Broadband Alliance. So we are, um, Raiden O'Reilly from Walden is, sits on the board there and we do all kinds of interesting things and planning the future of Wi-Fi. And I spent a lot of time searching for innovation, searching for exciting things in, in transit, in communications. Uh, and one of the biggest projects I work on right now is the station of the future. We set out years ago to, to determine what would the station, station of the future uh, look like and station broadly defined, gen, purposely generalized. Um, but what is going to happen in stations in six months, two years, 10 years down the road? So we spent considerable time in the last uh, while uh, trying to assemble all those great ideas and discovering the pitfalls along the way and, and talking about how we can make stations better because it's the place you spend the second most amount of time on your journey. So just about a year ago, we went to Berlin. We went to Innotrans, which is like 26 conference halls and a railway yard stuffed full of everything to do with innovation across, they say the transit industry, but it's mostly trains. Eight giant warehouses, plus the buildings that they came and built to demonstrate their stuff. The crazy huge space, or ginormous. Probably a thousand stands there. And when we walked around all of them, we got our... 25,000 steps in a day. But of that, very, very few talked about passengers and even fewer talked about stations. We can count so on I guess one that's hand. why stations really matters. Yeah, we can count on one hand the time we saw the word stations throughout all of that footprint. And, and even passenger experience we saw a few times. And then it was all about passenger experience. And let me show you how plush our seats are. And, and, uh, not really talking about passenger experience, but how they can make can give you a cheap or seat or a comfortable seat, or and and they a lot of places talk about passenger experience on the surface and uh, don't really follow through. So those are the you're right. Those are the two big things that we picked up from that show is the 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 Darth of 
true passenger experience discussions and talk about stations. So you spent a ton of time looking at stations, riding trains, hanging out in station buildings, talking to passengers, observing the flow, how how it works for operators, what happens with the retail stores, what it means for cities and things like that. But just to draw it back down to its most absolute basic thing, what is a station and why does it matter? You know exactly what a station is. And didn't didn't uh, somebody uh, in a place we shall not name uh, describe to you that a station is a box? It's simply a box where people get on and off the vehicle. And yeah, and that, I think that's proven motivation for us as well in this endeavor, because uh, and and this was this, the person in charge of station planning and design, and I, I just it, that cuts to the heart because it just so much opportunity is lost. Uh, we we view stations as community hubs, community hubs that uh, maybe trains happen to pass through or buses connect into. But there's so much more opportunity than just getting on and off the vehicle. Uh, yeah, that is definitely a part of it. And in some stations, uh, you know, in downtown, dense areas, business districts, there is a priority to get the people on and off as quickly as possible. Not a lot of room. A legacy station might be very small, under capacity. Yeah, get people out of there as quickly as you can. And some stations have that role, but others have a lot more opportunity. And uh, and a lot of it is unexploited. And as we've kind of gone through this process, you've like Bolden have actually published a white paper about stations. So. We won't bore people with all the ins and outs of that white paper, but they can find it at bolding.com. Um, but like, there's there's some fundamental things that a station has to get right. What what kind of stood out to you as part of that process? Because you can't just go putting really fun, crazy connected stuff into a station unless some very basic human needs are being met. Yeah. So so the first step was we recognize that not all stations are built equally. So the ideas that we come up with will be distributed in different ways. And, and we identified five different types of stations, which I implore you to read the white paper and, and learn more about, because I can't remember a list of five things. <laughs> um, so, but, but what we also discovered is there is a hierarchy. There's a Maslow style hierarchy of priorities that need to be met. And particularly in North America, I, I, I'm, I'm probably going to say a lot of things with a North American bias because I live in Canada um, and I have definitely experienced some very good stations. Uh, most of them are away overseas, but, um, but here particularly, but everywhere, there is a basic need to know that when you're in the station or on transit, you have, you're secure, you're, you're safe and it's safe to to take transit and the world is changing and we see it more and more. And, and as I described to you at one point, um, I, I joke that the stations in your city are getting particularly stabby. And, uh, if you can't have people go to the station and not feel threatened, you're going to lose everybody except people who have no choice, but to take public transit. And, and by the way, uh, I should point out that I made that Stabby comment in jest. And then you couldn't come and meet me one day because two people had been stabbed at your station and it was closed down. In a very leafy, nice, gentrified area of Toronto. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So 
So if it's happening there, what's happening in places that are a bit less well-to-do? Yeah, so safety and security is the, the base of that, is that triangle. Working our way up, um, we, we've kind of, we've I think we've promoted uh, cleanliness. I think cleanliness in the uh, age of the pandemic, cleanliness got uh, to be a higher priority on a lot of people's list because cleanliness was associated now with safety and security. And so having a station that is clean is is always important, but particularly in the age of uh, pandemic. Um, beyond that, now you start to get into the things that really should be at the foundation of the, the triangle, but um, the essential services. I got to know that you can get me there, show up relatively on time, get me there to my destination relatively on time. I have options to go on elsewhere uh, if I'm if I'm carrying a lot of bags because I just did some shopping, help me out a bit. If uh, I have a certain disability or I need to find my way around, uh, you know, all, all of these what we call essential services are are important to to your journey. Your 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 perception of the transit system will often be heavily influenced by your experience in the station, for better or for worse. So, um, you know, these things factor heavily into your pleasant experience. If you walk into a station, as I have a number of London stations, and I have no idea where I'm going, tension rises, your, your time, uh, you know, you get nervous about missing your, your train, uh, you're contributing to the congestion of the station. If more people are wandering around lost and don't know where they're going, you're making the station more crowded and, and it becomes this vicious cycle. So wayfinding is a huge part of, of that as well. I'll pause there and leave people in suspense for the next two. It's interesting that the, those first three things are actually not super sexy. They sh they're things that should be good. In many cities, they do work quite well. If you go ride the MTR in Hong Kong, it it's clean, it's safe, it's on time, and that stuff is is broadly covered. If you go ride the TTC or you go ride the with the MTA, I think historically people wouldn't associate those things with the New York City subway system. I actually think now they're doing huge amounts of things to go and get that right. The, the trains are getting nicer and cleaner and faster. They're running more regular service. The stations are being cleaned up as well. Um, so I think like stuff is changing in those kind of places, but it's not there yet. Um, and even if you went to bits of, like, if you talk to Germans at the moment there, it's a national source of shame about how late Deutsche Bahn trains run. So like essential services are not necessarily even met in places that are deemed railway utopias. So I think like it's important to establish that there's a long way to go to get to good enough before we go and layer on lots of interesting things at the top. What you just touched on there, um, it sort of gets us into another topic that heavily features in our white paper, and that is uh, behavioral science. You, you, you mentioned that um, a lot of this sounds like common sense. And uh, we, we interviewed Pete Dyson, who co-authored the book uh, Transport for Humans, which is our, our Bible now. But a, a lot of that book is just common sense. And they talk about how behavioral science 
which is just the study of how people operate, how people work. We're, we're not rational beings a lot of the time. We're not, we're not, uh, a lot of transport is uh, based, built on a model. How scientists and engineers are predicting humans will react. And here is the norm. Here's how we expect uh, humans to react. But we don't often react that way. And so behavioral science instead studies the actual outcomes, how people train, predict, or how people trying to predict how people will move when we are irrational human beings. And, and they make the point in the books that if this sounds a lot like common sense, that's kind of the point. And, it, and it's amazing how many common sense things we've come across that are just so lacking in so many stations. I, I, I want to, I've told you before, I want to host a, a, a talk entitled uh, Transit Stations, You're Doing It Wrong. And in some regions, um, one third of the people there will be heavily insulted and justifiably so. But the two thirds, others need to talk to those one third more often because they've figured it out and, and the others haven't. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out my pet peeve again. When I go to the washroom, I don't want to put my bag on the floor. Give me a shelf. How complicated is that? It's common sense. And yet so many places you go to, there's nowhere for me to put my bag. And every... We're in danger of moving into old men yelling at clouds. <laughs> things territory here of you with you what you want a hook or a shelf to put your bag down when you use the public conveniences in a in an airport or in a train station i want a ledge to open my laptop on where i can connect to the wi-fi in the station because you spent all this money putting wi-fi in the station but i use my phone data i would really like a place to use my laptop to go and send files or download a movie before getting on the train whatever it might be but like it's a few hundred dollars for a shelf is often the the thing that's blocking us from using multi million dollar technology. But yes, you're you're a man after my own heart. Yeah. Well, you, you're 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 speaking of the right demo, demographic when you're talking about old men yelling at clouds. Uh, chum, you can chum watch me chase the squirrels out of my yard later if you want. <laughs> well, that'd be a bonus episode at the end of this series. So that that our first three are actually like quite common sense. Though. Actually, the, the even the, the the two at the top of the pyramid. Are still deeply rooted in sort of common sense in the human experience, but the next one um, is really about convenience, right? Yeah. So, so the next two are really if you don't have the first three, um, there's no point in throwing a lot of effort in the last two uh, because if you don't have safety and security, if you don't have a base amount of cleanliness, you're only going to get people who have no choice but use transit so you've got a captive audience anyway so um if you establish those first first few layers then then you can spend more time working on the things that will give people more enjoyment and more likelihood of returning and the the, the fourth step in the in the pyramid is convenience like you were saying we we saw a big a, a new opening of a transit line in london with much fanfare and there were huge complaints because the seats didn't have, here we are with the shell talk again, didn't, didn't have shells that came out the back of the seats. So you're on a, a, a trip for a couple of hours and you can't make productive use of that time 
because there's no shelf for you to put your laptop on or or even enjoy, uh, you know, with a, a cup of coffee, somewhere to put your coffee. So these are these are conveniences that allow you greater enjoyment out of the out of the journey. I I think we sort of still to this day touch the you know we're at the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so many other things that we can do, and we will over time to integrate your journey with an added conveniences like being able to drop off and pick up your laundry or or uh, you know not enough places have a little little grocery store where you can pick up your dinner for the way home. Some stations do, and they're wonderful. Others have wide open spaces left from all the ticket booths that have been shut down because you buy all your tickets online now. So they have these these unexploited spaces that you can do so many other things with. Uh, I you know you, you were talking to a, a man at one point who his greatest transit stress was wondering if he was going to have enough time when he gets to the station to go off to the what was it the Sainsbury's or the coffee shop or M and S chicken katsu bowl. That's that's the there thing. You go. Yeah. There you go. So all of these things come together. If there was a way that we could ensure that his his uh, order was ready when he showed up because it was tied to his arrival and tied to his departure, making sure we got it there before his train takes off. And these are all things that come together to add for a greater experience. There's like a really interesting thing around it. It started to happen on the trains themselves now. So if you travel with LNER, and we're talking to them as part of this, or if you travel with Southwest Railway, we've spoken to them already as part of this, there's QR codes where you can order your food like so instead of having to walk to the buffet car you can order it and get it sent to you and it's kind of nicer as a passenger experience because you don't have to walk through the course of the train to then go see what there is apparently passengers spend more money when they can order at their seat because they're not making a panic decision when they're looking at the menu they're actually just they'll go oh yeah i'll have that they add on something extra as well and then it's almost better for the railway employee because rather than rushing through a queue, the passenger doesn't necessarily need that coffee and a biscuit immediately. They actually might be quite comfortable if it's going to come to their seat in seven or eight minutes' time. So it ends up making things better for all these different people. So it's sort of interesting. We started to see some of these things around convenience happen on the train itself, but we're not quite there in the station yet. We, we, I, I sort of, in some of the descriptions I gave just now, I sort of combined the next state, the next level, comfort and enjoyment through uh, a bunch of different ideas that crossed into both. Uh, we we distinguished them better in the white paper, which you should download. Um, but uh, you know, Wi-Fi is one that's come up and and has basically flowed through these categories. I think I think um, not long ago we probably would have put it in the category of convenience. I think in light of some surveys and some discussions from the UK government, we're seeing that Wi-Fi onboard connectivity is essential now. It's deemed as a, an essential service. And so uh, when when the UK government floated the idea of maybe we don't need Wi-Fi because people are telling us getting there alive and close to on time is more important. We can talk about the quality of that survey. Um, but uh, the, the backlash stemming from that really kind of made it clear that, no, this is what people consider an essential service. And, and it makes it 
a, a tipping point between do I take the train or do I drive in? If I take the train, I can use 90% of that time to actually be productive or, or just relax and enjoy and, and listen to music, watch a movie, what have you. But if you're driving, you don't get those, those luxuries. And I guess there's that thing of train Wi-Fi. In many places, Wi-Fi was put on trains quite a long time ago. And it, was, it, it wasn't easy to do it well. So actually, a lot of train Wi-Fi people sort of mock because it's a bit useless, it's a bit slow. But what where we're getting to with the technology now, what's actually possible with train, you can be on a train, you can have fast Wi-Fi the whole time. I was in Germany last year during the World Cup and watching a German man watching the World Cup with his son streaming it using the Deutsche Bahn Wi-Fi made all the funnier by the fact Japan Japan came from 1-0 down to go win the game and um, that man's laptop may or may not have been smashed into tiny little pieces at that point in time but he was able to live stream a football game using the Deutsche Bahn yeah. Wi-Fi. Yeah. And, and, I, and I wouldn't even say that fast Wi-Fi is important. Yes, if you want to have a, a train load of people streaming the World Cup, you need to have fast Wi-Fi. The priority now is reliable Wi-Fi. That's what the operators are looking for because if that if you can't have a reliable service, people can't depend on it. And and they'll try it and then they'll try it again. Oh, it's still not cutting in and out. That is the number one pain point in train Wi-Fi. But things have come a long way. And and you touched on it, this discussion from the government is coming because a lot of this equipment is old and needs to be renewed and contracts are coming due. So the decision goes to the accountant, the chief financial officer, instead of having discussions with the riders and trying to understand their behaviors and their wants and needs, um, like a behavioral science approach would take. And uh, But nonetheless, uh, the technology has come a long way that services deployed today are a lot more reliable. And we have the uh, a lot of the, the problems in the past have been related to the cellular carriers than the coverage areas in, in towns. There's a lot of, we know ourselves, wide open spaces in Canada that don't get great cellular coverage. Well, Elon Musk and others have uh, helped us solve that problem with satellite service. So there's a lot of different options that we have right now to make for good, fast, reliable connectivity. And it's not just passengers, I should point out. The transit operators rely on it as well. All the things that prevent breakdowns and leave you stranded and have to transfer to another train when it shows up or get buses to haul everybody away, these maintenance items can be monitored in real time because the train is connected and offloads all this telemetry data and maintenance. And there's like a sort of lovely thing around connectivity here where it, if you do it right, it enables so many things so at the, the security and safety level some people like to be on a phone call with a friend where they might not even be talking to them a lot of people do this when they're walking to and from home late at night um it might be reporting an issue of something's happening on a train that op that the staff don't have their eyes and ears on and then it can be attended to um i think swr point that out really nicely is Here's a broken piece of equipment. You can scan a QR code at the next station. Someone gets on the train, removes that piece of equipment, and the train goes on its way. Whereas in the past, that would have been, it would have, the situation would have spiraled and then the train would come out of service. And then it's bad for the operator and bad for the passengers. 
So if you can get connectivity right, it solves those low down things. But also if you get connectivity right, um, you can then enable really interesting. So like what Bolden do with Netskirt around caching content on trains, I think is really interesting because actually I don't really care if my train's 10 minutes faster if I can watch the end of my movie. I think is a is an interesting thing. Or in stations, it might be once you have greater connectivity, you can have drones and cobots and intelligent wayfinding solutions. But you have to get the connectivity in there to enable all of these different things throughout the pyramid. Yeah, I I I happily take an intelligent wayfinding solution. This is as you know one of my pet peeves. Houston Station has been around for 180 years. And we still can't navigate people through stations conveniently. So thanks for that trigger. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. Find out more, visit boldin.com. So I think like, I think as we go through this podcast series, because we've already recorded a few, if we're being honest, um, we speak to people who have a very broad, top-down view of they're, they're futurists and they're thinking about the future of how people live, work, and play, like Bronwyn Williams. We speak to people like Jasmine Pallardi, who are, she runs a thing called Lobby Fest, where they do... How do we make, what's the future of the lobby? Actually, a lobby and a station have a lot in common. Um, we talk to really progressive transit operators, and we're not just focused on trains. We, we actually focus on quite a few bus nerds. Um, but Alex Hornby's done amazing things with TransDev and what he's doing with McGill's, where he talks about to make a bus work, you actually need to be able to sit there and put a cup of coffee down on a comfy seat with a table and make a bus feel like a train, I think is a really interesting observation is how do you make buses desirable? So so he has nailed he has nailed the comfort and enjoyment level of, of bus travel. He's made he's made buses desirable. I think you remember the first uh, trained advocate or, or professional we spoke with and my, my first question was why are why are buses so unsexy? Well, Alex has figured it out, and he's found a, a niche where people who want to travel in comfort will pay a little more to take a, a bus ride that is certainly more enjoyable than any flight, uh, unless you're in business or first class, perhaps. But uh, he's he's made buses comfortable, and so the comfort and enjoyment that people get, certainly you feel safe and secure, they're, they're impeccably cleaned, uh, and, and it hits... All the levels. So, I uh, his his bus service may not be for everybody, but it's certainly hitting a niche that uh, has been lacking for so long. And then we looked to that. We talked to a couple of train operators, um, which is great to actually see. At the end of this, we're still a month or two out from talking to Rory Sutherland. We've already had Pete Dyson. Um, it's kind of interesting talking to the co-authors of the book in separate interviews. But Rory was a part of the the group that we spoke to to create the white paper in the first place. Um, but he always talks about a way to make rail travel faster is when you turn up and you've got an advanced ticket at Houston Station, you turn up really early because you don't want to worry about missing your train. And 
if I could pay, if I'm early and there's an earlier service, can I pay my five pounds, get on the earlier service and it frees up a seat on the later one? You just had this experience with Via Rail in Canada, which is like riding in the dark ages. I said that, not you, so it's only me that can get into trouble for it. Um, but LNER, they've done this. So they have, you have the LNER app and you're at the station early, you can pay a small fee and get on the earlier train. Um, I think they also do something where if you're running late because your cab to the station is stuck in traffic, they'll try and get you on the next train and not screw you for a whole new walk-up there at the station. So some of these, it's interesting seeing some of these things that have always been, oh, we, we can never do that because actually becoming part of the digital experience of public transport these days. 100%. Uh, thanks for the next trigger. Uh, yeah, I had a frustrating experience uh, getting on the train where they wanted $164 for me to move up my train one hour. Would I have paid a more reasonable fee? Probably, yeah. And then they would have had another hour to sell that ticket to somebody else. Instead, they took off with an empty seat on that train. And uh, I, I, yeah, I can't make sense of it. But um, further to your point, it's nice to see some of these things taking And by the way, Via Rail specifically is undergoing some major transformations that hopefully should bring them into the age of, you know, early 2000s Europe at least. But uh, they're, they're undergoing some major transfer, transformations. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, eyes and ears open, hoping for the best, uh, open-minded. But um, they have a little ways to go. But I hope they take into account the passenger views and are applying behavioral science instead of just throwing more engineers at the problem. And that's the key to success. Um to, to further to your point, it's nice to see some of the things that we've read about in uh, Transport for Humans. Uh, some of those things that were explicitly called out as good common sense ideas, I'm starting to see in the industry. I, I took a flight and the, the entertainment options on the flight toward the end of it just came up with, hey, do you want us to just show the things you can actually watch in the time that we have before we land? So simple. Amazingly convenient thing, common sense. So it's nice to see some of these things are starting to take hold, particularly in some places more than others. And maybe this is where we should talk about how cultural differences factor into this a little bit. Yeah, I was I was talking to someone the other day, and they were like, "Well, are you, maybe because you're in North America, like you don't know what Europe is like." But actually, we spent a ton of time riding British trains, German trains, Spanish trains. Um, we talk, we look at Asia an awful lot of what's happening there too. Um, so I think that there's, there's cultural differences in terms of country and history of operating. Like trains have always been neglected in, for the path of re in recent memory have been neglected in North America. But there's also different types of stations. So what you do in a London Waterloo is not what you would do in a sort of zone three underground metro type station that is 25 minutes away from the downtown core or the city center if someone wants to mock me for picking up Americanisms in my, in my use of English. Um, but like not all stations are the same and not all cultures are the same. I think that's a really important piece to call out of there's a hundred ideas that we've had. Each station 
can't take all 100 of those. Uh, we, we, uh, we had a roundtable the other day, and the question came out, where do you want to see things go in the next thousand days? Um, yeah, and I would broaden that out to two years, 10 years. I think one of the things that we really need to start pushing, particularly in North America, because there is a different culture in North America where, particularly in America, but in Canada too, uh, the car is an icon of freedom and mobility. And and there's a little segment of the population that would never consider taking transit and resent anything transit related and don't like the fact that they're funding public transit. But what there's a failure to understand there that for their car-loving enthusiasm, it is a good thing to be investing in more public transit because otherwise you're just sitting in three hours of traffic um, going nowhere in your in your lovely vehicle that does uh, 120 miles per hour. But um, it's in everybody's interest to fund transit. That's the one thing that I hope that we can get across over years and try to win some of these more more hardcore anti-transit detractors, say. That's the one thing that I'd like to change over the next 10 years. I, 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 I was going to point out that I think these things, these cultural things, though, are not, there's no overnight solution to them. They're things that we have to chip away at and erode over time. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while, and it's going to take some brave political decisions as well. Also, the cultural thing is, I think people people in the UK and Europe like to be a bit snobby about their public transit versus North America's, and they're kind of justified to be so. But when we spoke to Chris Cheek as an example, he's he's an expert on public transport usage trends. But if the UK wants to hit its climate goals, it effectively has to take so many journeys off of cars that it's the equivalent of doubling the size of railway ridership today. And I think the goal is 2030, maybe 2035, based upon what happened this week with Rishi Sunet. But you've got to take a 180-year-old piece of national infrastructure and double its current usage to take people out of their cars. There's a lot of resistance to that in the UK right now. We have like a um, a prime minister that talks about on the, in the war on cars, I'm on the side of cars, and it's that's not healthy language to car like a car driver is also a train passenger should also be a bus drive bus rider and many of them ride bikes too and i think this is a mentality that the industry has not necessarily got its head around and then when you do so have someone who by and large drives their car all the time if you take this holier than thou attitude, you will never get them out. Of we that see that car. a lot just in cars and and bike riders around here. Uh, there's there's an us versus them attitude that prevails, and and bike riders are the jerks who all roll through stop signs, and car drivers are the ones that you know knock bikes off to the side or, or are not driving safely around cyclists, and it's a very us versus thing, which fails to recognize that. I'll, you know, ninety some percent of those bicycle riders have driver's licenses, and it's just a role that they're taking, not that they're only in one champ or the other. But we've got to find. You, you touched directly. We've got to find a way to bridge this gap. It's it's maybe a, a more reflective of society in a larger 
broader scale that we find ourselves in two camps and cannot find the way to communicate across. So I don't know how you solve that overnight, but, but being able to, to put things aside and bridge the gap and, and talk in a language where you can discuss and negotiate and not just shout from the top of your lungs would be a good start. I tend to be the shouty guy, but I, I think the thing is really is really interesting as you watch it from a cyclist perspective. Like I ride my bike a lot around Toronto, I I roll through stop signs, I go through red lights. There's point of points when streetcars are stopped and passengers are getting on. If I have a chance to go around, I will go around because um, ultimately it's actually safer to sometimes get ahead. Otherwise, you'll never get anywhere on your bicycle. At the same time, time when I drive when I drive my car, I'm absolutely terrified and I'm incredibly cautious making certain right turns because. I want to make sure there's not a cyclist that I'm about to run over, but I think the cyclist who sees me turning is like screaming expletive car driver while I'm sort of trying to pay attention to him or her riding a bike. And there's a little bit of a lack of tolerance there. Um, but I think as you make the experience better for people and you, like the connectivity is not just about people being on the Wi-Fi. As you can see, all these things are interlinked. I think Bronwyn talks about it nicely in her episode of, as a futurist, you pull on one thread and all these other things start to fall apart. That's a really important thing to recognize is we did an event a few months ago now where you talked about stations and a man who was in that crowd, who was a very good friend of mine now, um, gave you a really hard time because he struggled to disassociate you at the time with the people that put the Wi-Fi in the subway. And the local commuter rail operation is not up to scratch in his mind and you got an earful for that despite the fact you are not someone who can do something about it well um i actually really enjoyed that conversation and i wish i could have had it about two million more times in toronto at the time but that involves some uh politics that we're just not going to discuss here but uh it, what it really reinforced was this man's view of connectivity as an essential service and in the Toronto subway, they had no connectivity. And so all of these safety issues, all of the convenience issues of being able to work, all of the security feelings uh, that you could get if you were on a train and could just call home to mom and talk while some dodgy looking person is the only other rider on the car down from you. None of these things are available. If if there is an incident, the, the video footage that comes off the train they have to pull the train out to the yard and have somebody climb aboard and pull that off all of these things are 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 so much better when enabled with connectivity and that's yeah that's not really what we're chasing as part of this white paper what we're chasing is broader than that we recognize that that if we can but what we recognize on a business sense is if we can rise the tide and get everybody to do better for stations well we're going to get more business out of that as a consequence anyway because the the a lot of the features that come out of that rely on connectivity and we're happen to be very, we happen to be very good at that in a number of ways i think that seemed that's an important thing here it's like a as as people listen to this and go through the conversations or as they see the snippets being shared in various places this is bold in learning about the industry and the future and imagining and building their sense of creativity and curiosity the sort of terms that we like at label sessions but 
as people listen to this, it's designed for people who are interested in transit, our passengers on transit, our operators of transit, our municipalities who have put transit at the forefront of trying to change the, what the future of that city looks like, real estate owners who might own stations, commercial businesses that operate inside stations, and if the people from competitors whose name I will not speak to Bolden get a lot out of this, we're really happy because if the Wi-Fi delivered by another partner on another train service or another station is improved, other things can be built on top of that and everybody can win. I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do here, right? And, and you've covered the stakeholders that are outlined in the, in the white paper quite well there. But uh, we, want to, we want to host a hub where, where transit operators who are looking, genuinely looking for ways to improve their, their rider experience and their own business and their, their own business uh, objectives, operational objectives, can go somewhere to get any number of ideas. And maybe that idea will lead to an idea on their side that leads to another idea that becomes the killer app. Um, we want passengers to partake in this. We want transit riders and non-transit riders to come out and say, um, you know, you've missed this, this is the greatest feature of my train station, or what I really hate is that I don't have this. And, and we need to reach out to those non-transit riders to understand what would increase their satisfaction, what would increase their propensity to get out and join the public transit uh, creek. You, you made an example earlier about the QR codes in Southwestern Rail, where you have a problem, you, you feel uncomfortable with something, but it's not an emergency, you see uh, a mechanical issue or uh, something is soiled that needs to be cleaned up and they can just click the QR, submit a response. If that person gets feedback, thank you for your submission. We cleaned that up three and a half hours. Within three and a half hours, it's all done thanks to you. That person feels more empowered, more a part of the whole system. We want people to contribute to the system. We want people to feel a part of it, feel responsible for it. And, uh, so, so yeah, we're, we're a communications company and a pretty darn good one, but this particular project, we want to make a better transit system that works out for everybody. And, uh, and so we've, we've taken this on as a, I've taken this on as a personal endeavor. I'm not a transit nerd. I'm not a train spotter, but I've learned so much over the last little while that, um, I certainly see what is right for our communities you put that really nicely but we'll try not to make you into a train spotter as we as we go through this either um i'll i'll, I'll we'll close this up because i want people to get on to like listening to the conversations but um we're about to put this out just before world passenger festival in vienna um we went to world passenger festival last year in amsterdam i think that's a really to, to us it's a bit of a shining light of for all the train nerdery, for all the engineering brains, and yes, we need the engineers to work out how to actually build and operate trains. We need the sort of softer touch. So like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that event, as I'm sure you are, and hopefully many people we meet hit, meet there will end up on this podcast um, because that's, a, that's one of the best examples of the, the industry doing a lot to make things better for the people who ride transit and do those common sense things. We saw a number of very good examples last year. And I think the, on balance, generally speaking, I think there's a lot of 
things for that North Americans can learn from Europeans and Asians as to how to do things right. Um, it's not to say they do things perfectly, but uh, they, they've, they've got a leg up on us here. And I think there's a lot to be learned from sessions like this. Great. Then we'll, um, we'll leave it at that. Um, if people want to sort of find you the best places, do we, do we give your email address that one here? Is that the same? I don't know. They'll find Chris Chris Bichette. He's a man on LinkedIn. Works with Golden Networks. If you, if you if you have a bug to bear, if you have an idea to submit, you will find. So, thanks, Chris. It's fun. Looking forward to this. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Follow or subscribe on the platform of your choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at Bolden.com.